Hello, everyone, and welcome to Witch Hassle. I am, despite everything, your host, Cooper Wilhelm, and I am just tickled pink to be able to bring you my interview today with Alice Sparkly Cat about their new book, Post-Colonial Astrology, Reading the Planets Through Capital, Power, and Labor. It is a fantastic book. You should just pause the episode right now and buy it via the link in the show notes, because the link in the show notes comes from Alice Sparkly Cat themselves, and will take you to a mutual aid group where you can buy it, so you can feel good about buying the book and also feel good about where you're getting it from. And just, you know, pause the episode and do that right now. Or I guess you don't need to, you don't need to pause the episode. I guess you could multitask. I can't imagine my introduction is like soup, is like so enthralling that it would be difficult to do two things that, I don't know, maybe I'm being too harsh on myself, but it's an eclipse. I can be harsh on myself if I want to. Eclipses are, are for everybody to be harsh on themselves, I guess. If they, I, anyway, that's not important. What is important is that this interview is a joy and it's about a very wonderful book that uses astrology to look not at the future or the present necessarily but at the past and how the past has come to shape the present the history of meanings the secret genealogies of concepts it's it's really important vital work especially in terms of just the in the spirit of you know tell me you went to college at the end of the first decade of the 21st century without telling me you went to college at the end of the first decade of the 21st century. But when I went to college at the end of the first decade of the 21st century, a friend of mine uh, showed me a video from, at the time, a very popular bad boy philosopher who's kind of, you know, fallen out of popularity and out of the public view, probably quite rightly. But the video, you know, the thing you see when you're 20 that it leaves a lasting impression that kind of has stuck with me for a long time is this, is this, is this philosopher, you know, doing a riff on Donald Rumsfeld. Because Donald Rumsfeld, of course, famously said that, you know, there are known knowns, there are things we know, we know we know them. There are known unknowns, things we, we don't know, but at least we know we don't know them. And then there are unknown unknowns, things we don't know and we don't even know we don't know them. Very scary. And then this philosopher, Slavoj Žižek, you know, says, oh, there's a, there's also a fourth category. There's the unknown known, the thing you know, but you don't know you know it. And this, I claim, he says, is ideology. And, like, just the idea that at any given time, our, our, our thoughts, the meanings that we use with one another, the language that we use with one another, might be invisibly shaped by the implicit messages of culture, this sort of, you know, this, the, the glamour magic of the things we are told without being told we are being told something is is such a vital thing to see and deconstruct. And I think this, this book does a lot of a really great work for allowing us to deconstruct where the roots of these meanings might come from and where the echoes of the past might still be informing us in ways that we aren't necessarily perceiving. So, a uh, really great book, Alice Sparkly Cat, incredibly brilliant really glad i got them on the show and that interview is at six minutes and 20 seconds in the episode but before we get to that you know that's just in case you want to skip ahead i'm trying a new thing with like a robot voice but if you don't want to skip ahead necessarily here is the plague magic minute and the plague magic minute comes to us all the way from 1665 from a publication from the royal college of physicians Certain necessary directions as well for the cure of the plague as for preventing the infection with many easy medicines of small charge, very profitable to his majesty's subjects. And there's a lot of advice in here, but the advice I want to focus on, because I think it's fun, is an extensive set of instructions for cleaning out the air of infectious elements. So we are told, Fires made in the streets often, and good fires kept in and about the houses may correct the infectious air, as also frequent discharging of guns. Also fumes of these following materials, rosin, pitch, tar, turpentine, frankincense, myrrh, amber, the woods of juniper, cypress, cedar, the leaves of bays, rosemary, to which especially to the less grateful sensed, may be added somewhat of labdanum, storax, benzoin, lignum aloes, one or more of these as they are at hand, 
or may be procured, are to be put upon coals and consumed with the least flame that may be in rooms, houses, churches, or other places, brimstone burnt plentifully in any room or place, though ill to be endured for the present, may effectually correct the air for the future. So, just, you know, a lot of things that I think we're, 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 we come across a lot as cleansing substances, as sweet-smelling suffumigations, uh, and then also uh, sulfur, brimstone. Always worth remembering as we do the careful and difficult work of reckoning with potentially difficult or unpleasant or uncomfortable topics that that which is ill to be endured for the present may still effectually correct the air for the future. So I guess that's a thought for the day. Put it on a t-shirt, why not? 1665 really, you know, capturing the spirit of 2021 in its own way. So that's the Plague Magic Minute. So here now is my chat with Alice Sparkly Cat. Uh, just a great joy to do and a great joy to bring it to you now. So congratulations on publication day. Oh, thank you. Yeah. How does it feel to have this one out in the world? It feels good. Yeah. Like today I just had clients back to back until now. So like I haven't really like thought about it. Yeah. Okay. Actually, that is something that I wanted to, to ask you about because you're not just, you know, someone who writes about astrology and thinks about it a lot. You're also, you know, someone who actively sees clients all the time. And so given that role, how do you kind of navigate the balance between being a responsible practitioner of astrology for your clients and, you know, holding space for them when they're dealing with like trauma or insecurities or, or any number of things and also being, you know, responsible to yourself as like a, as a worker in that situation who, you know, is also being exposed to trauma and other things that you're holding space for. How do you, how do you keep that balance going? Yeah. Yeah. I don't see that many clients. Like I see two a day. That's it. So then like, it gives me time. Like that's just my like capacity. And then, you know, like, yeah, all sessions are confidential. Yeah. I protect you know, folks is like privacy, like, you know, that's really what's important to me. Like, so like 90% of my work, like it's working with people, it's talking with people. So like, that's kind of my priority. That's my first priority. Then when you're sort of like putting a book together like this one, right, it seems like it must have been incredibly research heavy because you just, you kind of lay out the history of Western colonialism to some extent, kind of like in a, a piece by piece way for the last 2,000, 3,000 years. And like, so like when you're doing that kind of deep work, how much do you feel like that is like actively informing the readings that you're doing? Oh, a lot. Yeah, it changes the types of questions I ask, like relating to each planet symbol. It, yeah, it's like completely, it completely influences the readings. So the book, like, yeah, it's like post-colonial astrology. Like it's mostly research. Like there's nothing that I'm like saying about how you should practice astrology or anything like that. Uh, it's, and I, I never pull anything from my like client work too. So it's just like, it's about my perspective and it's about what questions questions I asked and like kind of the framework but that's pretty much it so like the opening sort of you know the introduction makes this case that we see a sort of rise in western astrology again and again whenever whiteness or or the sort of colonial project is threatened what do you what, what would you say is sort of the the big connection between processes of white supremacy and colonialism and the way that Western astrology was formed and has been practiced. Yeah, I feel like there's a nostalgia, like there's like a attachment of Western astrology to neoclassicalism. And then so that's what the book is trying to get into. It's looking at how Western astrology is remembered. And like you see this, like, I mean, you see this with other cosmologies too, with like Chinese cosmology neo-confucianism starts to rise at certain points like things like that i mean that's just it's something that i noticed that really stuck out to me i don't really know why it happens like that like usually when there's like kind of this rising fascism that astrology tends to get popular too and the thing is like a lot of the astrologers who are practicing they're like not all of them are fascists like some of them are but then some of them are being persecuted too so like yeah i'm not sure why it happens but i i think it has something to do with like just the, our idea of what rome means and like 
you know, the emotional attachment to Rome too. And what is that sort of like, what is the nature of that emotional attachment? Because I feel like a lot of folks, especially now that like a lot of people I think are getting into astrology and they're getting, you know, they go to Barnes and Noble, the occult section, they grab, you know, the first book they find and they're like, it, it has this kind of a historical bent a lot of the time. It's sort of like, you know, Jupiter has always meant the ruler yeah. and it, it, that, you know, in a very broad and vague way. And it's been that way for all of history. So when this nostalgia for Rome enters in, like what, what is sort of prompting Rome specifically? Like why Rome? I think Rome, because it's seen as the birth of Western civilization. Like it's, yeah, it, I mean, like there's this idea that like Rome, like it's the root of the West um, or something like that. Like even though ancient Rome, when it existed, it was not part of the West. And yeah, I agree with you. I think that when we like, when we engage with astrology historically, it like it tends to make Roman aesthetics like really universal. Mm. So that was kind of one of the goals of the book is to see like, oh, whoa, like these meanings, like they're not a historical, like they've actually changed quite a bit throughout time. And they're also referenced again and again. That's something that I really love about this book is that, you know, it, it really deals with, I think, the messiness of these systems of meaning and like really puts them within, within a context. And I, 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 like, how did you sort of go, like, about that process? Were you trying to, like, create a narrative of just, you know, here's the moon here, here's the moon at this time, here's the moon at this time? Or is it just sort of trying to find, like, all the different pieces of, like, the constellation of meaning and trying to just sort of fit them together any way they might actually, like, match? Yeah, yeah. Astrology is not really neat. It's, like, very associative. Um, So, like, definitely, like, I wasn't trying to provide like a linear history of anything. That's why like there's these groupings. I was trying to make a book that people who practice astrology could use. So like that's why the luminaries are kind of grouped together with Saturn, like Mercury with Jupiter, Venus with Mars, because like those are kind of the dichotomies in the plant and like just the rulership scheme and stuff like that. So yeah, I was I mean I was trying to use like make something that a practitioner could use. So like astrology, it works really associatively. And that's how we kind of reference history, too, because I feel like, yeah, a lot of times, like, even though we don't know, like, the linear history of something, we know how it's remembered in the associations, too. Yeah, I mean, you make this really great point in the book that that our memory of history is very ahistorical as well. It's a kind of creation as opposed to an actual memory. You you turn up so many wonderful... I mean, they're, they're, they're wonderful because they're sort of revelatory and counterintuitive, even if, like, the news is bad in its own way but like looking at say like let's take an example of like the moon for example because I, I think that is the first the first one you you talk about in the book you you point to a lot of associations contemporarily with like femininity and the moon but it hasn't always been this way right yeah yeah because like with the with the moon like i really wanted to separate out this modern construct of gender from reproduction and the reason why is because like gender, like it doesn't like it doesn't have so much to do with reproduction. Like reproduction is kind of something else. What else to sort of because like you you talk about reproduction, you know, in different ways in this book. Like it's it's not just sexual or genetic reproduction, but it's also the reproduction of value, the reproduction yeah. of capital. How do these two things kind of like line up? How does one kind of hijack the other? Yeah, yeah. Well, like, like money is able to reproduce itself because it's exploiting life. And that's the only, yeah, that's the only way that money like gets to increase in value. The only way that it has like any interest, like another word for interest is offspring. So like, yeah, like money, it absolutely like, hijacks a lot of value. Um, so that's why like with re- reproduction, I wanted to talk about money. I didn't really want to talk about gender. So how does the moon come to be originally associated with i think you were saying it was it was associated originally with commerce yeah because like the moon rules the tides it rules the waters hmm. and then uh com- like a lot of so it ruled mercenaries like like mercenaries like you know they like sail on ships and stuff so a lot of marketplaces were on the beaches um like things like that and so how does this this transformation occur from being sort of this this 
planet of money and commerce and exchange to becoming this this planet of of femininity like who sort of spearheads this what makes this come about well the moon it's not really related to femininity like the modern idea of femininity it's related to the body and then like yeah there's somehow like this idea of like well like material things like that's feminine like abstract things that's masculine like there's that involved as well but it's not really like like the moon it's not really involved in our ideas of like domesticity and so like yeah there's some things that don't match up with just how we think about femininity like today and the moon but it is yeah it's about reproduction and yeah reproduction like material wealth like it's something that is like extracted in order to create this idea of money um so yeah there's like there's a direct relationship there it makes a lot of sense. And like you, this, this idea of like extraction pops up a lot in this because it is sort of the, the basic technology of colonialism to some extent. So I, I am curious about actually how this links into when we talk about when we talk about the metals associated with planets, right? Like especially the like lunar silver and solar gold. Like how do these planets sort of benefit from the associations of the way these metals are treated. There's like a pretty big difference between how silver accumulates value, how gold accumulates value. Uh, so like silver tends to accumulate value through trade. It's coined by local kings and princes. Like like it exists like kind of outside of the church, so it's being it's being traded a lot. And then, uh, and then, like we're using like a lot of silver coins of like foreign currency too. So like, yeah, and just kind of looking at like the history of coinage, um, people would talk about just using foreign coins, and they would be silver coins. Um, sometimes copper too. And then with gold, what tends to happen with gold is that gold's given in the form of gifts from royalty and like from church members, from clergy, and then like after gold's mined out of the ground and then given in the form of gifts it's like buried into the ground again so it doesn't really circulate it has a really short life outside of the ground and so it tends to accumulate value through hoarding so there's a pretty big difference just in terms of how silver and gold like moves through the world mm. and you you make this really great argument about the sun and about gold as being light but light that's used in a very specific way it's like the direction of light could you talk a little bit about about that idea of like this selective sort of attention i think you're talking about like the like god in paintings which like in many paintings like god would come from like a or like a religious figure inside the painting so if you look at how a lot of like medieval icons depicted light it would be as if as if like holy figures they were emanating light outwards so if they were in the center of the frame that everyone kind of scattered around them they would have like uh, like the shadows of a piece it like just how light logically functions like where shadows are placed it would be as if lights coming from that holy figure but then you see like light moving off the frame sometimes when you look at like superhero comics made in the 1950s light is usually seen to be coming from the viewer actually so like sunlight like light is usually seen to be an eye like it's usually seen to be like a eye that like that you can't see but that sees you and so, like, that's why with the sun, there's this idea that, like, you know, the sun is God. It's something that you can't see, but can see you. And, yeah, so there's, like, there's this whole section in the book looking at how, like, light moves around in a frame, how it moves off the frame, like, what it does. And how does this link up to, like, our, like, ideas of power within, like, a Western hegemonic system? Yeah, well, in the West, visibility is power. And sometimes that means that being visible is power, but sometimes that means that being able to see other people is power. Um, so like in a liberal state, like surveillance is really key to how power is thought of and conceived of. And not just like surveillance with cameras or anything, but like people watching each other, uh, people just feeling like they're being watched, people feeling like they have to be 
visible. Like that's a big part of how power is constructed in the West. And so like when you're when you're doing an astrological reading and you're you're thinking about these these ideas of like how the sun relates to the hoarding of gold, how it relates to sort of the directing of attention, like how does that come into play when you're talking about something like say um, like a person's sun sign? Or yeah, yeah. I always tell people like the sun is your concept of dead. Like not all the time your biological father, like it doesn't have to be, it's just your concept of dad. And then like, I always just define like the concept of dad, which could be a romantic partner. Like, you know, that could be like how that's moving for you or workplace or anything like that. I just always define the concept of of dad as like someone that you want to be seen by, like someone that you want approval from. That's really, that is really interesting. So I think a question that kind of came up to me when, when reading this is, is what is the relationship that Western astrology has with its past? Like in sort of delving into the, the history of these meanings, how important is it to reckon with them as things that are still like really operative in how we can think about astrology or like the Western astrological tradition now? Or are they things that we have to deal with as sort of like a legacy of the West. Yeah, yeah. I'm really glad that you asked this question. Like, I feel like this is what I'm trying to like ask people with the book. Like, I mean, I have no idea. I feel like I'm never gonna have any idea. Like, I feel like it's a question that like astrology practitioners are trying to ask together. And like who knows where it will go, but like how we inherit like our histories like I mean that's so different for each person it's not yeah I feel like it's not something that like can be answered too when you say like it can't be answered you mean sort of like in a definitive way or it's sort of a, a question you have to just have to keep sort of readdressing yeah yeah I feel like it's definitely one of those questions that like you just kind of like come back to over and over again that makes sense. I mean, it's, it's interesting because I like when I see sort of like a lot of people talking about different ways in which like contemporary Western culture is indebted to, you know, past actions that are that are like evil or they're indefensible or like past cultural products that are, you know, completely undesirable in some way. You know, the way that like the American film industry, for example, uh, came in part out of like minstrel shows, stuff like that. Um, there is this, I think, desire to sort of like burn it all down. Like we start, we start from scratch and just jettison, you know, all these things that have all these negative implications or they're associated with, you know, like terrible atrocities. Is, is, is there a temptation to sort of do that with the Western astrological tradition as well? I mean, of course. Yeah. Because the reason why is because when you're experiencing trauma and you're you know inheriting trauma like there's this impulse of like let me go back in time like let me time travel like let me go back to before any of this happened which is it's impossible to do so like i mean part of acceptance has to do with accepting that what has happened happened and that's for oppressors too like part of accepting history is for oppressors to accept shame also so like i think what you're talking about is like well you know let's just get rid of all of history or like all of astrology like we can't get rid of history I and mean, a lot of these problems in astrology they're not unique to astrology they show up in art uh, in like you know stories in um yeah music and then it's like well we're not getting rid of the entire thing and we're like yeah we're seeing like i guess like what kind of future we can build from here too mm. that's actually i think that ties into something you say in the book that i i thought was really lovely um which was that western creativity is a killer's creativity killers see the act of destroying and the act of creating is the same act killers love a blank slate upon which they can start anew a creativity that works against the western anti-hero is a creativity that grows from the world as it is which it seems like a very a very lovely call to action and i i guess my question is sort of you know with astrology it seems like part of the work certainly is doing this kind of history that you've done of like looking at what created astrology and how it is 
part and parcel with things like colonialism, with Western hegemony, with, with, with white supremacy. But like moving forward, where do you think astrology needs to go so it can be something that is, that is responsible and a potential tool for healing? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, that's kind of like asking, like, you know, like, yeah, where do you want to be in five years or something? I don't know. Yeah, I hope that like, yeah, I hope that there's, you know, a lot of solidarity between practitioners. I hope that like, yeah, these are just things I personally hope for. I hope there's a lot of mutual learning that happens in client spaces. I hope that, I mean, I hope that like we don't gatekeep because I feel like that's one of the things that like keeps astrology alive is that no one who practices it like heard about it from a corporation or institution so yeah I don't know I have a lot of hopes yeah what are what what about you what do you think I mean honestly it's it's strange because it does sort of feel like when you when you like sort of dig into this and you look at I mean, honestly, so you make a really good point very early on in this book that um, in a lot of ways, astrology can be sort of equated with race where there is a kind of artificial categorization that happens. But the big, the big difference between the two, of course, is that race is then associated with systems of power and systems of oppression. And astrology is not. And it, it does sort of lead me to wonder like how much astrology can be renewed every generation by people sort of deciding that you know because these symbols are fairly arbitrary in certain ways you can invest very new meanings in them that maybe are less harmful but at the same time like i i what i like about this book is that it isn't also it isn't just about astrology it's about sort of trying to look at how we got to this point culturally, historically, economically through the lens of astrology. So I was wondering, actually, could you talk a little bit about like the idea of like looking at history through astrology? Like what was that process like for you to sort of, you know, bring a bunch of events in history under the purview of like, what is, how can we look at this through say the idea of Jupiter or how we can look at this through the idea of Saturn? Like what was... What was it like looking at history with that lens? Yeah, yeah. Well, like, I like what you were saying before about, um, like, I think what you were talking about is just like, like, I think what makes imagination so terrifying is that it, like, we see it as something that's so whimsical, almost like, oh, we can imagine anything. But that's not really true. Yeah, like, there's a structure and there's a rigor to imagination, too. Um, so, like, yeah, looking at history through the lens of astrology, it was, uh, I mean, confusing. Astrology works associatively. So then when you're pulling together material for each chapter in order to ask, like, I mean, ask, I don't know about the right questions, but, like, ask some questions, you're looking at like what are the associations of each planet um, you're trying to figure out like where those associations come from uh, but a lot of things like change during that process of information gathering and also writing like i rewrote a lot of this stuff and like mercury and jupiter they were originally going to be about technology but then that had to change because then I realized technology is really about labor. So then that changed like a lot of like, I mean, it changed a lot of the material that I was gathering from um, both of them, like just what the perspective was and everything like that. With that shift, like what does, how does Mercury relate to sort of the the relationship of technology and labor? Because I mean, one of the, one of the incidents you point to, for example, is, uh, is Mercury making a liar out of a tortoise shell? Like, what, is, what does something like that have to tell us about the relationship between technology and labor? Yeah, in that example, Mercury creates something that's an instrument from a turtle. So it makes this living thing, uh, like, into a dead thing, but then it's, like, creating a language from it. It's creating music. Uh, so, like, there's something... 
about Mercury that is, I mean, like Hermetic, like Hermes, that's about um, like hidden things, cryptic, like the crypts, uh, like Mercury was the god that had like the freedom to go into the underworld all the time. So there's an association between Mercury and death all the time. And like, I think part of that is because like just how like information extraction is kind of like thought of and imagined. Um, it's always like this idea of like we're going to like the secret like underground tomb and then we're like extracting information all the time you talk about death a lot in this book in a way that i think is is very useful that i in also a way i think a lot of people don't are not used to thinking about it but what is that what is what does technology do with the geography of death how does how does technology map death technology um i'm not sure yeah yeah with capital like what capital tends to do is that it tends to like yeah it tends to import life towards the capital and then it tends to export death outside of it so like that's kind of how like yeah like death is like kind of circulated and like this idea of like i mean this 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 idea of like capitalism as this this force for I mean it comes up again and again in this book of this force for creating abundance by moving scarcity elsewhere by by making sort of a lot of the problems of technology somebody else's problem mm-hmm. yeah yeah and then that I mean that's climate change too how would we benefit from sort of looking at climate change from like an astrological standpoint like what would be like a good way that astrology can make the problem of climate change clearer or maybe solutions to it clearer like which planet will we turn to to really think about climate change is it all of them are they all just sort of interrelated or is there like a go-to planet for something like climate change i feel like the question you just asked is kind of the question that a lot of folks have been asking over the last year Cause you know, like there's all these articles in 2020 about like astrology. It's making us feel like uncertain or it's like, it's, um, you know, it's what we're turning to because we feel so uncertain about the future, about whether we have a future. It's, um, and what we experienced this last year, like, yeah, that was a result of climate change too. So like one question that I always get because like, in like just regarding like western tropical astrology is like climate change because it's such a climate-based system like capricorn like when the sun's in capricorn it's like you know cold dreary things like that it's so climate-based it's um it's rooted in one particular climate and yeah and i don't yeah i don't know i feel like that's maybe the like kind of big question for astrology is like how how is it changing today like with climate change that's a really I had never considered that, that like that our astrology is just not going like if, if climate change continues at pace, like our astrology is just not going to make the traditional astrology isn't going to make sense in the yeah. same way that it might have in the past. Right, right. That, and that's for that's for everything, like a bunch of different languages, art, uh, like, you know, the art of cooking. Like, yeah, there's I feel like sometimes there's this feeling of like hope. like why am i doing this because of climate change but like yeah i feel like you know astrologers are going through these questions but so is everyone else too right and like as an astrologer who's like you know because i mean i feel like people you know would come they come to their astrologer for guidance they come to their astrologer for advice for help but as someone who's also just like another human being facing the exact same global catastrophes and 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 in systems that that your clients are like how do you do you do you feel like your role is still to give advice or is it just to sort of like like where do you see yourself in relation to your clients in terms of something like having like answers to questions in such an uncertain time yeah well i don't give advice i know some folks do like i don't give advice and like i see my role as a facilitator of a conversation that the client's trying to have with themselves so mm-hmm. i see my job as asking questions yeah i mean that's what i love to do that's where i do the most learning is through the client work too and then it's like uh with climate change it's kind of like everything else like there's this poem where um like throughout the poem i can't remember who it's by but there's a poem where it's like 
the whole poem is about bad things that will happen to you it's like your dog will die like someday you'll die like things like that it's like i mean we never had any like you know no one's looking at that and going like oh all these like future grievings or anything like oh no like let me give someone some advice like i feel like no one's really looking at that sense of just like not sometimes not knowing what to do after we lose someone and thinking oh i have the right answers or something like that but I feel like astrology readings, it's a way to be there for each other. And it's a way to like, like do some pretty like intense and deep work with someone who's going to hold space for you and ask questions. That's why I get astrology readings. It's really because I think, oh, this person, they have like the answers of the universe, but it's, it's because I want to have a conversation about something. That's really interesting. And I love the specificity of it, like the idea that, you know, it it really depends on who that other person is and what they're going through. It's not just like, well, you know, my client's a Taurus, so I'm going to give them the Taurus answer No. for this sort of thing, yeah. which I mean, it's something that I think that this book does a really good job of is like attacking the idea that Western astrology can be or has to be universal in some way yeah Yeah, it's not yeah and like is the answer to i guess so the it's interesting because like the 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 at the end of the book you're you're sort of looking at like what do we do now that you know you've gone through this whole book looking at how western astrology is kind of wrapped up in things like other things that attempt to make the west universal you know white supremacy colonialism things like that and you point to this idea that that astrology, part of how we, we deal with this is we make the West as small as possible in our conception of it. Um, how, do, how do we, like, could you talk a little bit about that? Like, how do we sort of make the West smaller in our practice of astrology and just in our, in our lives? Well, like, the only thing that I can think of is to like think about it in a specific way to understand that it's not a universal system it can't like you know it's not here to answer any universal questions we're asking universal questions and what that looks like for me personally because that's different for everyone you know yeah and everyone every practitioner has a different way of working with astrology for me personally what that looks like is like using western astrology to talk about about these Western concepts with people and like just having conversation about how it impacts their lives. Like I find that to be a really powerful thing. And I don't think that Western astrology can talk about everything. I think that like there's a lot of different cosmologies out there. Things are built to talk about different things. Like for example, if you go to see a therapist and then like race never comes up, like that's, I mean, you know, like there's something missing and you can say, well, you know, yeah, race isn't real, things like that, but it's an experience reality. So we're experiencing the West all the time. So like, I think that we can use Western astrology to talk about our experiences. But like our experiences, like specifically like of the West and what it does. Of the West. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And to, to try to locate any agency that we have in making choices, things like that. Speaking of like of like the limitations of astrology and sort of what astrology can't do, you say this this really interesting thing. Um, I think somewhere near the end of the book that astrology is not a technology of representation; it is a storytelling tool. And I'm I'm curious, like, what do you see as sort of like the 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 role that astrology has as as a storytelling tool as opposed to like something that can that can sort of represent things to us? What how do we use it to tell stories? to to yeah i think that like astrology as representation would be like okay like you know this is what like um venus means like let me i don't know let me somehow like kind of integrate that into my life or something i think that storytelling would be like oh here's my experience of venus which could be anything it could be about like the civil state it can be about beauty it can be about like social expectations that's what i usually like kind of like yeah use venus to talk about social expectations and here's my story of it and that's a really different experience i feel like when you're telling a story like you have a lot more agency you have a lot more choice it's a lot harder is there i mean like it's interesting because like you you 
you talk a lot about like these, you know, these like personal associations that people have with these planets. But when, you know, we're also receiving so much of like the Western astrological tradition, like how much, how much work do we need to do to push back against the sort of received stories and received story structures that we get from Western astrology? Is there, is there like, is that like an active labor of like sort of saying, you know, I, I accept this, not that, or is it more a question of like trying to kind of like sit within all those like competing narratives and just make sure that you hold on to your own one? Yeah. Wait, sorry, Cooper. I'm not sure if I really understand the question I want to. That's, that's entirely fair. I, I worry that it was kind of unclearly said. When we talk about, you know, the idea of using our own associations with the planets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We also are doing this in the context of, you know, a received tradition from, you know, the Western astrological tradition. How do we sort of navigate the tension of saying, you know, this is, this is my lived experience, this is my personal experience, this is, this is how I have always seen Venus in my life with all these sort of, you know, collective, you know, the, the intense structures of, of storytelling that we get from, you know, traditional astrology that says that Venus has to be this thing, Mars should be this thing for us. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I feel like part of that is like, yeah, like how true to the canon of astrology do you want to be? Like, where do you believe creativity is happening? Like, do you think it's happening in distribution or a response? And then, like, in terms of, like, my perspective, my background, like, I always think that it's coming from the response. So I don't think that people really just receive things. Like, I don't believe that to be true. I think that when you receive something, like, you're always responding to it. So like when you make that clear to yourself, like you can be more honest about what your response is. That's really interesting. So like the true, the, the true sort of like divination happens sort of in our reaction to the, the sort of prompting of the system. Yeah, yeah, because astrology, it's a living language and what's keeping it alive is your practice of it. And so it's changing as you practice it all the time. That is like, the single most empowering thing I've heard about astrology from anybody. Cause like, I don't, cause like, like you bring up Adorno, right? And I like, and like when you bring up Adorno, you, you bring him up, I think in the, like in, at least at one point in the context of, you know, the, the age of uh, what the work of art and the age of mechanical reproduction, the idea of, you know, uh, technology kind of potentially, you know, these fears that technology will be like deeply dehumanizing, which is fair. But I was, I was sort of waiting you know, the, the big sort of thought I had when I picked up this book and hadn't hadn't read it yet was like, you know, what happens when, you know, we come across that like Adorno thing about how like astrology is bad and it leads to fascism because it's it's disempowering. Well, part of that essay, like um, in the essay is like the stars come down to earth. Yeah. Like, part of the essay was uh, he like Adorno was pretty misogynist. Like he was hating on He's like, well, you know, these columns like they're written for like women. But then they're always written as if they're like made to describe a man. Yeah, I mean, he yeah he has a lot of attitudes about like just magazines in general too. Yeah, I mean, he seemed like he was no fun to be around just right. as a person. Like also just like oh, you're listening to jazz. Sounds like you're on the road to becoming a robot. There. Sorry. Like, he hated jazz. He had this idea of like well, everyone's going to become like the same person, which was like very orientalist actually yeah that's that's in well how, could you could you speak more to that like how how that particular fear is very because you do talk about it in the book and i think it's a really interesting point but could you like uh could you explain like how that kind of like taps into a tradition of orientalism in in the west part of cold war orientalism was this idea that like all of asia is like brainwashed by this communist machinery and it's funny because like the word brainwashing, it actually is a translation of a Chinese term. Huh. This idea of Western thinkers projecting their own fears onto other people's other places that they that they can't sort of accept in themselves is this really interesting through line in the book. And I am curious about about how we can use astrology to I guess better see ourselves in terms of what we are afraid of 
Like, is astrology a good tool for seeing the parts of ourselves we're afraid to see? I think that Western astrology is a really great tool for seeing our wounds, which mm. is like very, it's, it's powerful, uh, but that's not all there is to us. So I, yeah, I do have to say that like, just like who we, the selves we are under oppression, that's not all there is to us. So that's something I'm interested in exploring. And I've been pretty deeply invested in learning how to practice like this for the last five years. But I mean, I, I do want to, like, I, I do want to learn other stuff. When you say practice this, you mean astrology or you mean um, this kind of, this kind of decolonizing of astrology? Well, practicing Western astrology to talk about wounds. Okay, yeah. Something that I thought was really interesting that you brought up in this book was the relationship that Jupiter has between divination and justice. And how do you see this relationship sort of informing astrology as a form of divination? Because actually, before we even get to that, like, so in, so divination and justice, how does, how does Jupiter sort of relate to these two concepts? Yeah, well, Jupiter is the son of Moira, who's fate. And then Jupiter wanted some of Moira's powers. Uh, like, I think this is like one of the mythological stories. So like Jupiter wanted some of Moira's uh, powers and then she would only give him one. And she gave him uh, the ability to legislate, to do like, um, you know, decide like uh, right from wrong. Um, and then, like, you know, more, more is about divination. So, like, uh, implicit in the story, I think, is this idea that, like, by like making a judicial system, by, like, deciding what's right and wrong, like, you also kind of create the possibility for a future, too. And part of that is about Jupiter's relationship to the sun, too. Because, like, the sun is about the future. Like, Jupiter is the daytime benefit. Um, so, like, these two plans, they have a pretty strong relationship also. And so, you know, astrology, classic form of divination, do you, do you feel like when you are doing astrology, you are doing a lot of work to sort of create the future as much as you are sort of trying to sort of look into what it's going to, to look like? Or, or is there, I guess, I guess the question is, is, is astrology a good tool for creating a future for us? That's a good question. Yeah, I think that astrology, like at least the client work side of it is about like just you know, like using this tool to get a perspective on the life that you're living. But living life is how you create the future. So I don't think I create a future as an astrologer. I think I, you know, create a future by living life and like, you know, so does everyone. So in terms of like the, the like the classic dichotomies of Western astrology. What are sort of the key dichotomies to keep track of? Is it is it the sort of like the like Saturn-Jupiter dichotomy of, of politics and like an idealized agrarian past? Is it the dichotomy between Mars and Venus? Like if we're really trying to like think about power structures that we would like to move past or undo, like what role can these dichotomies have in our thinking and which which one should we really focus on like so like there's a lot of dichotomies in western astrology there's like the relationship between the luminaries saturn mercury and jupiter just because they rule opposing signs uh and then venus mars there's also like between the sun and moon between you know, diurnal planets and nocturnal planets too and then yeah of the same sect like you have the benefic and then the malefic and sometimes like those are seen in opposition to each other too or read like side by side at least and yeah dichotomies like i feel like dichotomies can like just help folks in like thinking through things in like just kind of looking at different sides of a thing looking at all the sides of how it functions and it, like it reveals a lot too like when you're able to toy with them so in terms of something like say, so there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff happening right now where there are a lot of people who have been receiving augmented unemployment during the pandemic. They are not willing to go back to work for the same jobs at the same pay that they had before. 
and there's like this huge sort of conflict going on about you know like wages what kind of working conditions people are willing to accept what kind of jobs people are willing to accept a lot of employers saying you know the uh the 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 unemployment is too high no one wants to work for us they're all too lazy or something like that in something like that what would be like a good astrological dichotomy to sort of frame that conflict like how to yeah how to talk about this i guess yeah like labor struggle in astrological terms yeah like how do we how do we best approach labor struggle in like an astrological term or in astrological terms yeah yeah i guess yeah i guess like it would like yeah the only way i can think of is like if i have a you know i'm i'm talking with someone who's like hey i'm going through this dispute with my boss like i would look at what's going on emotionally for them mm. um, yeah i mean like i guess you know i've been part of a union before like yeah i've been through part of that process like we didn't use astrology like when we unionized so i'm yeah i'm not sure yeah i guess like you know, there's so many applications. I bet there's someone who's going, like, who could come out and say, like, well, you know, the bosses, they're represented by this. The workers, they're represented by this. Like, here's how we can use astrology, like, for organizing. But, like, in my personal experience of organizing, like, like I, yeah, I haven't really used astrology in that context. One last thing that I did want to get to before sure. before we close off is you make this really interesting point about how Saturn relates to citizenship and how that is sort of deeply embedded in the American conception of itself as a kind of agrarian, idealized, self-sufficient kind of place. Could you talk a little bit about that relationship between those ideas, like how, how Saturn kind of relates to citizenship and to agrarianism and how that kind of can can teach us a lot about sort of American self-mythologizing? Yeah, that's a, it's a complex one. And it's also a very like, um, like heavy one, like Saturn, it's about role reversals and like how Saturn is celebrated during the Saturnalia it's like with like people who are reversing their roles a lot of the time and Saturn's about land like so something that the United States like does and did is that it appropriates indigenous or like how settlers think of indigenous like aesthetics in order to distance themselves from Europe and to also feel like they belong on this land. So yeah, that's, and then that like, it's a Saturn ritual that uh, it's a role reversal that kind of happens. That's a, yeah, that's a really heavy one. Like the United States, like it's a, it's a settler colonial state. And so like part of the making of the United States, it's this appropriation of culture that happens to steal land so there's a there's sort of that role reversal to sort of become the native inhabitant of a place that you've taken over in terms of of saturnine associations with questions of fate and precarity and nature how does that sort of come to represent a kind of i guess like a kind of of intense strength and self-sufficiency for like the American cosmology. Like, is it, are these just sort of like other currents that kind of get jettisoned in that? The idea of like, you know, cause you point, you do this really great work of pointing towards Saturn as something that is associated with like the idea of like, you know, nature is, nature is fickle. Nature will give you great abundance or you will starve. And there's really no, there's no sense of justification to it. It's just sort of, it happens or it doesn't. Does that aspect of Saturn link into the American self-mythologizing as well? Or is that something that just doesn't touch that as much? Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's definitely part of like American mythologies around who it is, just American ideas of what nature like looks like, what nature does. And then like a lot of times like indigenous people are conflated with nature here too. So then these stereotypes like it, they kind of extend like so the saturn stuff with nature like it's not about like nature like you know i'm not a scientist i don't study nature or anything like it's about like how we conceive of nature how we imagine nature and like our fears around nature could you could you go into that a bit more deeply what, what do you when you say like our fears around nature how does sort of saturn touch into that like what is it sort of about nature that is scary that saturn kind of captures 
Yeah, we're like, we're deeply afraid of nature. And that's why we try to control it. We see it as something that like is uncontrollable, something that controls us. We see it as something very chaotic. A lot of the time we see it as something that's very dumb a lot of the time too. Mm. Yeah. And so is it, is it sort of a Saturnine impulse to, to try to control nature? Or is that, is there, or is that sort of like the part of the conflict between Saturn and Jupiter? I think that's part of the conflict with Saturn in general, because Saturn, it's usually imagined through conflict. Like Saturn's the son of Uranus and the father of Jupiter. So with both of these people, like Saturn has some kind of conflict. Yeah. So Saturn, it's not like one thing. It's like, it's a duality of things. That's how all the planets kind of function. And then Saturn, it's like, it's a father, but then it's also a son. And in terms of like the other planets, like I think Saturn, like you, you do a lot to really tease out the idea of like Saturn as, as the duality of like, you know, it's the, it's the king with abundance, but it's also, you know, the starving peasant who eventually becomes, you know, the Grim Reaper or something like that. So just like a skeleton. Yeah. Yeah. But like in terms of the other planets, like where, where, where do you see these sort of dichotomies kind of playing out or these kinds of, you know, paradoxes? Like, for example, like with something like, say, Mars. Like, where do you see these sort of opposing sides within Mars itself? Because usually I think a lot of people, they associate Mars, like, it's it's in opposition to Venus, right? But, like, yeah. but like for Mars, like, within itself, where, where do you see that sort of opposition playing out? With both Mars and Venus, I would say that we see the opposition playing out through the gender binary. Like, Mars is sometimes seen as hyper-masculine in such a hyper-masculine way that it becomes effeminate. And then Venus is seen to be feminine, but then it's um, like it's a it's a type of femininity that's about civil discourse. It's about like domesticating something wild. So then it becomes masculine too. So like yeah, both Mars and Venus would be like kind of like the duality is with gender binary stuff. That makes a lot of sense. And like with Mercury, do you see like a sort of do you see a paradox sort of in like the, the the nature of Mercury is sort of like the the planet of like lying of of sort of you know doing of of saying the half truth or is it does it have more to do with things like the paradoxes of like say technology? There's definitely a binary with Mercury because with Venus and Mercury especially because both of these planets are inferior. So then we see them become morning stars and evening stars. So that's kind of built into the myth. And then Mercury's binary comes from its travels to the underworld. Like that's mm-hmm. the retrograde cycle. So the Mercury above the ground and the Mercury under the ground. Interesting. And like in terms of like this binary of like the Mercury, you know, the Mercury in the land of the living, Mercury in the land of the dead. How should we approach that when we're thinking about, you know, I, I don't how to move past our own sort of, you know, our own small deaths when we are, you know, facing the the, the terrible perils of, of being a person and, and, and experiencing trauma, experiencing grief, experiencing um, pain like should should we turn to mercury as kind of you know a resurrectory figure or should we sort of look at mercury a different way in terms of these sorts of things yeah by looking at the whole at the whole story i think and then just yeah seeing how you want to interact with mercury and like how you yeah how you engage with language like what about language feels like it's dead what about language feels like it's alive like asking yourself those questions Actually, in the book, you mentioned that you were thinking of writing about Mercury in terms of language and that you decided to go with technology instead. What prompted that choice? Why did you decide to focus on technology rather than than language with Mercury? Yeah, the only reason is because like when like putting together this stuff, like I wanted to look at the material history of something. So like language, talking about Mercury in terms of language and the astrology is the language, Mercury rules astrology too. I didn't want it to be like too meta. Like I feel like there's just like so like, you know, so many places you can go a lot of like navel gazing. I didn't want to do that. I wanted to talk about like death and life in the context of labor. And I mean, like you do such a lovely, such a lovely job of that with this book. Um, Yeah. Like I, I, Honestly, like the th- like, it's funny because I I feel like this book is definitely directed towards astrologers, but it seems like just a very useful primer for people to think about colonialism and labor, and and gender, 
Um, even if they don't have that much of a, yeah, sorry, go on. Oh no, I was just going to say, like, I hope it's useful for astrologers and I hope that it might be useful to folks who are practicing like other languages too and just thinking about language. So when you say other languages, you mean like, especially like things like symbolic languages, right? Like the sort of like, like art, things of that sort, or do you mean sort of just any language? Could, I mean, could you, I guess you could apply this to like, just sort of learning, could you apply this to learning a foreign language, do you think? I guess I was thinking about like, you know, language is like, like gender is a language, like, and that's an embodied language usually. So there's something at stake, there's your your body at stake. And like, just how you kind of like live out languages. Yeah, not like, not so much languages in like, maybe like a dialect or not like attached to a nationality so much. Yeah, like the language as in like the practice of something. I don't know if that makes sense. No, that makes perfect sense. As a sort of maybe a closing thought, like when we talk about, you know, astrology as a language, but how much do you think is astrology an embodied language as well? Is there is there a way that we sort of find ourselves, especially if we find if we if we think a lot about astrology and if we think a lot with astrology, do we do we find ourselves sort of embodying that language more? Or is there really kind of like a time and a place for astrology and you can kind of like keep it closed into like the the you know the the closed space of the session? with the client i hope that it's embodied language i think that's kind of hard to do with client work sometimes or maybe that's just me speaking right now because we had like a year of you know virtual sessions that like sometimes i feel very disembodied like at the end of the day because of that but like as a practice it's totally embodied like i mean when i was seeing people in person like there was something like to that you yeah you talk to the person face to face like you meet each other and yeah people practice astrology in different spaces and those spaces come alive like yeah i feel like it's very embodied and then also just like how people like think about astrology when they're like flirting with each other or like yeah i feel like it's very embodied that's that's a really lovely thought and and actually speaking of like this past year, you know, it's it feels like at least here in America we're sort of coming out of it, but there's been, you know, of course, this this really disproportionate access to things like vaccines. But like as sort of at least here locally, we're kind of coming out of the pandemic a little bit. Do you do you feel that astrology has been like a very helpful tool in dealing with, you know, the disembodied feeling of constantly being on Zoom calls, in being sort of trapped in one's own house? a lot of the time like do you did you sort of turn to astrology a lot as like a helpful tool in that time or was it just sort of you know same as it ever was the 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 work remains for you to do i think that what really helps me with feeling disembodied is playing Mm. so like astrology is part of how i play for sure like yeah with other people with friends with my partner and then there's other ways that I play also. But yeah, it's like it, when I have fun with it, I feel like it definitely just like kind of like centers me in my physical form. That's really nice. So we've, we've, been, we've been going for a bit here, so I, I should probably let you go. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this and, and, and your patience with all like the technical stuff and stuff like that. But um... Oh, same. Yeah. Thanks for your time. Oh, gosh, no, this is a pleasure. But before we go, is there any sort of last little thing that you would want to leave people with? at the end of this like conversation? Mm, I guess the last thing is like the book comes out today. I mean, like when we're recording this, um, so you can order it. If you go to my website, like I haven't changed my page, like, but like there's a pre-order link. It'll take you to the order page and then you can order it from No Mundos. They're a mutual aid network in addition to being a bookstore. And they also ship internationally. So they ship to wherever. That's amazing. And so, okay, that's great. And if people want to check you out, they should go to your website. They should go to your, your Twitter's great. Huge fan of your Twitter. Oh, um, thanks. Yeah, I mostly just post pictures of my cat on Twitter. That's what people, I mean, that's also. I see. <laughs> but like, uh, you also, have, you say some really great things about astrology on there as well. Let's not, let's not undersell the Twitter page. But is there anywhere else that, that people should go to check you out and sort of like learn more about what you're doing and, and what you're up to? Yeah, yeah, I have a website, alicesparklycat.com. That's cat with a K. And then, yeah, you can find me on Twitter or Instagram. Like, I'm on, yeah, I'm on both sites a little bit. Like, yeah, some, you know, I get addicted to social media and then I go on and then I, like, I don't want to be on it. And then sometimes I don't go on. But yeah, I'm, I'm on sometimes. Amazing. And I'll put links to all that in the show notes. Thank you so much for being on. Yeah, no, thank you. 
Thank you so much to Alice Sparkly Cat for being on the show. I will have links to where you can buy their new book and also where you can check out their social media, their website, you know, maybe hire them for an astrological consultation in the show notes. This has been Witch Hassle. Our theme music was performed by Sebastian Baverstam and recorded by Edward Lee. Thank you so much for listening. If you like the show, if you want to support the show, by all means, leave a review anywhere that you can do that on the internet or just, you know, shout at people out your, your window or something or... I don't know, have, tell friends, you know, anything you want to do. Uh, there's a Patreon also for the show with some sort of, you know, Patreon-only content. If you want to check that out, that's patreon.com slash witchhassle. Good luck with the work ahead.